What would you say to somebody, and Shelby, you might think about this. What would you say to somebody who says, Jesus never did anything, and Jesus never said anything about being God? That's something somebody else dreamed up later. That's a common, that's a common charge nowadays. Jesus never thought he was God, never said he was God, never did anything, uh, that would affirm he was God. He was just misunderstood. Well, uh, where would you go in scripture? Well, I would say there's probably a hundred places, 500 places, but let's just start with something that's relevant. I mean, last Sunday in uh, the life of Christ A through Z, um, Matthew 16, quizzical questions. Who do people say that I am now that the false, the, the leaders of Judaism are saying I'm a false teacher, satanically possessed. And then the second question was, who do you say that I am now? What do you guys think now? What are you willing to confess now? And Peter hits the grand slam home run. He says, you are the Christ. You are the savior. You're the issue and issuer of eternal life, comma, the son of the living God, which means you are God in human form. And Peter says that. And Jesus says, don't say that. I'm not God. I don't just do or say anything that Sounds like I'm God. Is that what Jesus does? No, he says, hey, that's right. And that's going to be the whole foundation of the, of the Christian church, that truth. So I'd say that'd be a good place to go. Because Jesus, you know, I've occasionally gotten some uh, complimentary introductions when I've gotten to speak off campus. I don't get good introductions here because you guys don't know who I am. So it'd be no purpose to try to say anything too nice. But uh, sometimes when I'm speaking off campus, I get a very complimentary introduction. But if somebody were to say I was a decorated war hero in the introduction, I couldn't get up and do my speech and ignore that. I have to say, hey, I really respect our veterans. And I did serve one year on Army ROTC at University of Houston, but I was never active military. And I never faced a you know a shot in combat. So there are some things that people can say about you that would have to be denied if they weren't true. So that's what Jesus accepted that affirmation last week. And this week, we're going to look at letter R, Reality Revealed. And in this incident called the Transfiguration, we're going to see our Lord Jesus Jesus unveiling, displaying the Shekinah glory of God that is his, that that he normally veiled so he could experience the whole human condition uh, through most of his ministry. And so he's going to prove, he's going to confirm that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, and we're going to look at a passage uh, in this transfiguration passage that confirms the deity of Christ, among many other things. So the bottom line is Jesus is the, the unique person of the universe. And this is very offensive to some people nowadays, but Sydney, there is no uh, compromise on who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That's the whole core of the Christian church. Uh, I see a lot of young pastors with a business mindset. They bring a business approach to the church, and it's all about market share. And I think, hey, you guys are not Christianizing uh, America, you're Americanizing Christianity. And there are just some things that aren't up for grabs. And Christianity will not work unless we have a God-man Savior. Jesus affirms that. He proves it. And this isn't just something theologians talk about. J. Oswald Sanders famously said, the deity of Christ, the idea that Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, just, righteous, sovereign, eternal, all the attributes of God. The deity of Christ is the key doctrine of the scriptures, as according to J. Oswald Sanders. Reject it, and the Bible becomes a jumble of words without any unifying theme. Accept it, and the Bible becomes an intelligible and ordered revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to look at one of the many things Jesus did and or said that affirms his deity as we look at the transfiguration in Matthew. But first, let's uh, pray for teachability and for our troops 
our peace officers and our firefighters. And uh, Eric, would, uh, Warden, uh, pray for us in that way, wouldn't you? Thank you. I'm going to dedicate this uh, abstract thought warmer-upper uh, to Angel, Dustin, and especially to Henry and Clay. These are two guys that really appreciate my uh, humble attempts at humor to warm up your capacity for abstract thought before we start getting serious about Scripture here. Uh, we're going to do the uh, knock-knock jokes again. Okay. So this involves a Shelby. I don't know if you've ever been in church before you, where you did knock-knock jokes, but this is going to be the first time for you. But... Uh, uh, I'm going to say knock knock and you're going to say who's there and I'm going to say something and you're going to say something who and we'll go from there. Okay, you know how this is done. So knock knock. Gorilla. Gorilla me a hamburger right now. That would have been good two weeks ago, right? Knock knock. Harry. Harry up and answer the door. You're knocking on a door. I don't mind explaining the jokes. Uh, they told us in seminary, if you use illustrations, you have to explain. Don't use them because they're supposed to illustrate. And that's probably the same thing for jokes. Uh, knock, knock. A little girl. A little girl who can't reach the doorbell. See? You're groaning, but you'll use some of these, won't you? I know you will, Henry. Okay, the last one. Hold your applause. Whoop. <laughs> knock, knock. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like me to stop with these knock, knock jokes? See, I, I knew what you'd say on that. Yeah. Now, kind of a theme biblical statement that kind of ties all these 26 letters together in the life of Christ A through Z would be found in John chapter 1. In the beginning, that should sound familiar. That's how the Bible starts in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the word already was. And the title of the word here is a title for Jesus. In the beginning, the word already was. He's before the beginning. And the word was with God the Father as a separate person. They didn't create because they were lonely. They're perfectly fine without us. They created us out of grace, not because of any need in them. And the word was God. The word wasn't God the Father, but he was deity, fully God, fully divine in the same way the Father is divine. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, some of you guys are deep thinkers. When John's writing his gospel and he says, hey, he came to earth and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, what event in the life of Christ was John probably thinking of? The transfiguration. Okay, that's what he's talking about there. But these statements are very important. In the beginning, the word already was. He's eternal. He's transcendent. He's deity. The word was with God. God the Father as a distinct person, but a co-equal person of the Trinity. The Word was God, full deity himself. And the Word, as Eric read in Philippians, he veiled his glory so he could fully um, interact with the human condition. But he unveils it at the transfiguration. He unveils it at the ascension. When he comes back, he will be unveiled deity. In Revelation chapter 1, we'll look at later, he sees Jesus with his resurrection glory. His glory is God. So this whole premise that Jesus never did or said anything about being God is just ridiculous. But the only thing sadder is many Christians, Sydney, are stopped dead when they hear that because they can't think of a passage that would contradict that. And there are just 500 of them, but we're looking at a really good one, I think, today. Now, um, when we think about Jesus as God, 
in John. Uh, probably my favorite verse in the Bible is John 3.16. Martin Luther, no less, said it's the gospel in a verse. And really, uh, it's one thing to win theological debates about the fact Jesus claimed to be God. You should be able to defend that as a Christian. But that's not the gospel. That's part of the gospel, you might say. It's necessary for the gospel to work. But that's not the gospel. If you got somebody arguing theology with you as a skeptic, don't just win that battle. Don't just give them 18 verses that prove Jesus claimed to be God. Go to the goal line, you know. Uh, jump over the goal line, as you might say. Like corn dogs. See how way corn dogs snuck in there at the end there? That if you can't beat them straight up, just turn around and slide in. That'll work as long as that ball gets across the goal line. So what are you going to do if you get an opportunity to, at a teachable moment with somebody that respects you to share the gospel? What are you going to say? Well, call Pastor Brad. He's not available. Call James. You know, call Homer. You know, call somebody. Uh, no, probably not. Uh, I wish I had one of those tracks. I could just read the track. You know John 3.16. John 3.16 has three things everybody needs to know. Three things God wants everybody to know. God couldn't love them any more than he already loves them. God so loved the world. God couldn't give any more for them and their salvation he's already given. He gave his only son and God couldn't make the access of salvation any clearer that whosoever believeth in him believes in the God-man Savior for salvation, shall not perish lake of fire, not physical death, but lake of fire, future tense, but has everlasting life, right? Uh, that's the bottom line. And that's the thing that holds all Christians together, belief in the gospel of Christ. Now, there's some people so far to the left that claim to be Christians, they deny the atonement, they deny the resurrection. There's some people so far to the right, they've made it all about their works. But there are 36,000 Christian denominations, none of us sacrifice animals, even though there's a whole book in the Bible about how to sacrifice animals at a temple called Leviticus. Why don't we sacrifice animals? Because that was partial, preliminary, and pointed to the one-time sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And all who dare to trust him for salvation based on who he is and what he did there is given, they don't deserve it, the gift of eternal life. Okay? How many of your sins were future when Christ died? We just uh, sang the song as well with my soul. You know, my sin, the, the, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. How many of your sins were forgiven? How many sins were future when Christ died? All of them. How many did he pay for on the cross? All of them. That's what's forgiven when you trust for Christ for salvation. That's salvation forgiveness. That's what we've got. It's based on the fact that God, man, Savior, paid the sin debt of humanity on the cross. And we're going to see this wonderful passage. I've taught this many, many times. I've taught it in Mexico. I've taught it in Jordan. I've taught it in Israel. I've taught it all over the world, literally. Uh, and I love it. Uh, but sometimes people don't look at one of the most important verses in this passage, which is the last verse of the previous chapter. Uh, Shelby, the chapter divisions in your Bible were kind of conventions made up about a thousand years or more after the New Testament was finished to help people find stuff. And this, they're fine. We need to have some kind of system so we can find stuff. If we just had 28 chapters of Matthew with no numbers, it'd take us forever to find anything. You know, it'd take us 30 minutes to find the same passage. So the chapters in the verse numbers are human conventions um, more than a thousand years after the New Testament. But sometimes we let ourselves lock into these chapter beginnings as brand new units of thought. And quite often, and they're not. So we're going to see a riveting prediction uh, about the transfiguration in the last verse of chapter 16. And then in verses 1 through 8, we're going to see a rapid, six days later, fulfillment of that prediction in the transfiguration. And then we're going to see some radical teaching in verses 9 through 13. So let's look at the riveting prediction, and we're going to go to the last verse of the previous chapter, because 
Matthew 16, 28 directly ties into the first part of chapter 17. That division should not, those numbers shouldn't deter you from connecting the dots there. Jesus says, but I say to you, he's talking to the 12 apostles, uh, there are some of those who are standing here right now, that's the way you'd say it in Oklahoma, who will not taste death. And that's a Semitic idiom that means before you die, but like real quick, before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And people think, well, that means the second advent, and Jesus didn't come back in the second advent during the lifetime of the apostles. That's a problem. Now let's translate it this way. There's some of you who real quick will not die. You're going to see real quick the Son of Man as he will look when he comes in his kingdom. Or you could even translate this. MacArthur Study Bible confirms this. As you see the Son of Man in his royal spirit, splendor. Six days later, this is going to happen. Jesus took Peter and James and John, that's three of the twelve, the high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. He unveiled his glory. They saw him in his royal splendor as he will look in his second advent. So, you know, that's one of those uh, biblical problems that occasionally people bring up, Bible contradictions. He said they would see the second advent. He doesn't say that. They're going to see him as he will look at his second advent. He's going to unveil his glory, and that's what happens there. Very, very important um, that you see that. Now, the fact that Jesus has not come back yet, some people will argue he came back invisibly or something. That's not right. This is the book of Revelation for, for beginners, okay? Whole book of Revelation, hardest book in the Bible, right? No, it's not the hardest book in the Bible. In chapter 1, the resurrected, glorified Christ appears to John on a prison island, a Roman prison island where, Rome, where John was stationed, had been sentenced. We've been there. It's a real island. That's chapter 1. Tells him to write the book. Chapters 2 and 3, Jesus talks about the church age, things he likes in churches and doesn't like in churches. Chapter 4, 1, a door opens in heaven. John's caught up and he sees the control room, the scene in heaven at the rapture just before the end times breaks out on earth. Chapter 6 through 18 talks about the seven-year tribulation on earth, the last seven years of human history, the rise and the reign of the Antichrist before the second advent of Christ when he will come back in royal splendor and end history on God's terms, visibly, undeniably, literally. Then we see a thousand-year kingdom on the earth and then the eternal state. So Jesus is talking here in Matthew 16 and 17 about an event that happens six days later when he will appear, look like he will look when he comes back at the second advent. But the second advent hasn't happened yet, and he didn't say it had happened yet. He'll talk about the second advent after this transfiguration event as if it hasn't happened. So he clearly doesn't mean that. So that's where the guys are there, if you see that dot there. In the second advent's there, it's not the same thing. Okay. Now, by the way, and this is so cool, just to save time, who are the three guys at the transfiguration along with Jesus? Peter, James, and John, right? When you read 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, Peter says this, and he saw the transfiguration. We did not follow cleverly devised, uh, King James says fables. This translation says tales. When we made known to you the power and what Jesus is going to look like at his coming. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty at the transfiguration. Peter and James, John saw this. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... Such an utterance as this was made by the majestic glory, the voice of God the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. You're going to say that? That's what God says at the baptism. That's what he's going to say today in the transfiguration. Same thing. And we ourselves, Peter, James, and John, 
heard this utterance, saw Jesus in his majesty when we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, go to the next verse, chapter 17, verse 1. Six days after Jesus said, you're going to see me the way I'm going to look at my royal splendor at my second advent real quick. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them to a high mountain. What did Peter just say? We saw him on the holy mountain. Good things happen on mountains, which is why I'm glad. It took a miracle to get the wars from Colorado to Oklahoma because we, we don't really have big mountains. But we, because good things happen on mountains, don't they? Uh, I remember, uh, uh, a couple summers ago, we went to Colorado for just a short four-day trip to Colorado, just on a whim. We never do that, and we went to Pikes Peak, and that was that was a hoot. We really enjoyed that. And then one one year, we went to uh, sounds like we're always going out of town, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, a couple of years ago, we went to Albuquerque, New Mexico. You ever been there? There's a mountain on the uh, east side of town called Mount Sandia, and this would have been like uh, I think it was spring break. It was the weather was warm, but uh, we. Uh, at the bottom of the mountain, we decided to drive up the mountain. It was 70 degrees. When we got up about two-thirds of the way, it started snowing on us on this mountain. And Debbie said, turn around, turn around. I said, heck no, we're going for it, baby. We're going for it. <laughs> we went up there. It's snowing, man. And our little thermometer on our dashboard said 30 degrees, and it felt a lot colder. So good things happen on mountains sometimes. And uh, But it's interesting this is one of those things people debate about. What high mountain are we talking about here? Well, the highest mountain anywhere near Israel is Mount Hermon. We will see it next May uh, from Caesarea Philippi. And remember last week we were in Caesarea Philippi, right? So that would make a lot of sense. That is a high mountain. Some people argue that we're talking about Mount Tabor. Now, Mount Hermon is 9,200, it's 9,000 feet tall, whereas Mount Tabor is just a little under 2,000 feet tall. So I'm, I'm pulling for this one, and I think it makes sense to think it's this one, but it doesn't matter which mountain. They're on a mountain. Peter says they're on a mountain. We saw his glory. John says we saw his glory. They're both talking about the transfiguration event, and we read this. Look at, in fact, I've got another, got another map though. This is a satellite map. I always love satellite maps, don't you? And remember, Capernaum is where Jesus bases his ministry in Galilee. But last week, he took the guys out of town so he could ask them, what are you thinking now in light of what the leaders are saying about me? And they're at Caesarea Philippi. So they're very close there. Now, in six days, you could walk from Caesarea Philippi to Mount Tabor. I understand that. Uh, I can do the math there. So it's possible. It doesn't really matter which mountain. But they're both really mountains. I got a couple of pictures. That's, that's uh, Mount Hermon from a distance. That's a picture I actually took myself in May in 2006. You can see it's a little faded because of the, the uh, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it's not, it's sure not uh, fog, smog, but uh, uh, it's just not real sharp. But can you see the mountain? I mean, the, the snow on top of the mountain? And that's in May. So it's a, it's a pretty tall mountain. And then this is an internet picture in January. So that's Mount Hermon. And, uh, you know, we're going to find out. I'm going to ask Peter, James, or John at some point, hey, which mountain were you guys on? Was it Hermon? or Tabor, but it uh, doesn't really matter. But they're on a mountain, and uh, we see what happens here. Look at uh, verse 1. Six days after that prediction, it's going to be fulfilled. He takes his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, in the inner circle. They go to a high mountain. Sounds like Mount Hermon more than Tabor to me. And he was transfigured. The Greek word there is the word we get metamorphosis from in English. Metamorphosis, Tammy, is when you go from a cocoon, right, from a caterpillar to a, a butterfly, radical change. He was uh, metamorphosized. He was transfigured. He unveiled his glory. His face shone like the sun. His garments became white as light. Hold your place. Go to Philippians chapter 2. This is called the kenosis 
passage in theology. Kenosis is a Latin word that means to empty. Jesus emptied himself not of his divine attributes, but of the outward display of his divine attributes and the independent use of his divine attributes. Sometimes preachers, Joel Olstein, who should know better, would say, you can do anything Jesus did. You can walk on water. You can raise the dead. I would say, well, do it. Show me. I want to see it, number one. You can't do everything Jesus did. Jesus was the God-man. He gave up the independent use of his divine attributes, but when prompted and led by the Spirit, he expressed them, okay? And he never lost them. He's got more to work with than you've got. Now, Ray's got a lot more to work with than I've got, okay? Blanche's got a lot more to work with than I've got. Uh, But like my mom said, you ain't got much, son, but be the best you can, you know? So that was always my goal. Um, She actually said that once, right after she told my uh, nephew, he's going out for the golf team, right? Yeah. Uh, You told him his uncle, me, was all district and uh, um, captain of the golf team, right? said, no, I didn't tell him about that, but I told him about the time you stole the bubble gum from the grocery store. I'm like, thanks, Mom. I'm sure that really helped him. Yeah, so when we say Jesus emptied, we're not saying he did not empty himself as deity. He never ceased being deity. He gave up the outward display of his deity. So as Isaiah predicts, he just looks like an ordinary Palestinian Jew. He didn't look, he didn't have a halo. Hey, all those drawings you see on the back of your Bible there, uh, Shelby, with a halo, Jesus didn't have a halo. He he deserved one, but he, he veiled it. And this is what this Kenosis passage says. Verse 5 of Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. He didn't constantly pull rank. Although he existed in the form of God from all eternity, in the beginning was the Word, Word with God, Word was God. He did not regard outward functional equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he gave that up, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, but he looked, he had the form, the outward display of just a human being. Looked like a human being, not like an angel or God, except at the transfiguration. And being formed, in the, being found in appearance as a man, which is already a humbling thing for God to do, he humbled himself even further to the point of death, even death on the cross. So that's the God-man Savior. He could pay Kyleen's way into heaven, Ron's way into heaven. And boy, I'm glad Jesus paid their way into heaven because I really like them. But more importantly, he paid my way into heaven. And that's what the bottom line is. Now, by the way, look at Revelation 1. You know Revelation 1 is the risen Christ commissioning John to write this book. We just saw our chart a minute ago. But look at the way Jesus appears in Revelation 1, which is in about 90 A.D. Of course, we're looking at events in 32 A.D. back in Matthew, where Jesus is still veiling his glory, except he unveils it at the transfiguration. But look what happens here. I love this. And it's so great to be able to say, I've been to Patmos. I would always wanted to go to Patmos, and we got to go in 2010. Maybe you should go back. It's an amazing place. Um, Revelation 1.9. I, John, that's the same John at the Transfiguration event. Your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the Roman prison island called Patmos. They would have known that, kind of like Alcatraz used to be a prison island. It's no longer in operation, as you know. Because of the word of God and the testimony he was giving about Jesus, the Romans saw him as dangerous. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, and heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you're going to see. He's commissioning him to write the book and send it to the seven churches. So I turned, verse 12, and looked at the voice, and I saw seven lampstands. They represent those seven churches. In the middle of those lampstands, those candlesticks, I saw someone like a son of man. 
someone like the Messiah, uh, emphasizing the Messiah's humanity and yet his glorified humanity. Clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, girded across the chest with golden sash. His head, his hair were like wool, white. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze. This is the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. In his right hand are the seven stars. Those are the messengers of the seven churches. Those are the pastors and the churches. I like that. And verse 17, when I saw him, this is John who knows Jesus personally, but he's so overpowering in his appearance now because his glory is more unveiled even than at the transfiguration, I would say. I fell at his feet like a dead man. I fainted. And he said, don't be afraid. I'm your Savior. I'm your Lord. I'm your first, last living one. And he goes on and commissions him to write the book. So go back to Matthew, uh, yeah, Matthew uh, 17. Six days after the prediction, you're going to see me as I'll appear in my royal splendor when I initiate the kingdom at the second advent on this high mountain. Jesus is transfigured. His glory is unveiled. His face shines. His garments become white. And Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets represented, the Old Testament, appeared with him, talking with them. Luke passage says they're talking about his departure. They're talking about the death and the resurrection and the ascension, the climax, the fourth quarter of the game, right? Is that awesome? Uh, uh, you know, uh, the big question is, how did John... Or in this case, Matthew, who heard from Matthew, from John and uh, Peter, James, and John later. How did they know that was Moses and Elijah? Did Jesus say, hey, guys, I want to introduce you to my friends here. John, this is Elijah. Uh, you know, James, this is, is uh, Moses. You think that happened? We're not told. I don't think so. Uh, I think when you're in that forum, people can intuitively know who you are. Or maybe they wear name tags. I think maybe for the first... Maybe for the first couple of eons, you know, you go to a mega church, you can't know everybody, so everybody wears a name tag. Uh, I, I always kind of thought, I don't want to pastor a church where I can't know everybody by name, but I'm really good with names, and we could use name tags. So, uh, I don't know. Um, but people ask questions like that, and I would just say, uh, you know, ask Moses or Elijah at some point in the future, and they'll probably say, hey, we've known, we wore name tags. We knew Peter, James, and John were clueless, you know. What do you expect? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's really good for us to be here. We're really enjoying this. There's a smile on his face, song in his heart. Now, that's going to change real quick when this voice of God, the Father, comes up. But right now, he's having a great time. And we weren't expecting this. This is better than we thought, you know. I thought we were going to come up here and pray. This is much better than that, right? now. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. They're all going to have exactly the same thing. I don't think that's a big category mistake. I think Jesus kind of outranks the other guys. Um, the commentators wonder what's going on here. Some say Peter, because the Feast of Tabernacles, the Old Testament feast, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, anticipates the kingdom. And because Jesus looks like he's going to be when he comes in his kingdom, that Peter's wanting to kind of, you know, they have uh, Christmas in July, you know, at Target. So you'll go buy stuff and they'll put a Christmas tree out and buy your, buy, sell stuff to you. He's wanting tabernacles. This isn't in the fall, I don't think. Uh, let's kind of have a mini tabernacle celebration because this is the way you're going to look at your kingdom. Uh, or maybe he's just saying, maybe it's late afternoon, he's thinking, hey, this is too good to stop. I'm having too much fun. I want this to go into tomorrow. Let's just kind of put some cover up so we can uh, uh, bivouac, you know, spend the night up here. I'm not sure what he's getting at, but I know he wants to elongate the experience. He's having a good old time at this point. And it's funny how emotions can change so quickly because he's want, he's having, he's all smiles. But look what happens in just a mini second. When he was still speaking about building tabernacles, 
putting up some tents, a bright cloud. This is the way God the Father manifests himself. Anytime you see God manifest in a personal sense, it's Jesus Christ, New Testament and or Old Testament. But God will, God the Father often appears, but it's always in just a veiled vocal way. When he was speaking a bright cloud, the visible presence of God the Father overshadowed them and behold a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then a lot of people skip over this last part, Ray, but he says, listen to him. Don't worry about treating Elijah and Moses and Jesus like they're equals. They ain't. Focus on him. Those guys are helpers. Now, they're the most exalted, powerful, important helpers probably in the whole Old Testament, but they're just helpers, okay? Billy Graham's just a helper. Alstein, I'm not sure how much he's helping, you know, based on his theology. But your favorite preacher, your favorite parachurch leader, even the ones you find, you know, uh, Ray finds all these great parachurch ministries, and you found some really good ones, you know, but your boys were telling on me the other night at the uh, Kindred community, yeah, I mean, you need, Brad, you need to listen to this guy's YouTube videos. My mom found him recently, you know, so I like that. That's great, but, and she's good. You know, she stays with somebody for like six weeks and finds somebody else, but, uh, yeah, there's so much good media out there. You need to cherry pick it, you know, and uh, I would never say only listen to me or uh, James. You know, you need to uh, hopefully if we're in scripture, you're going to find some confirmation out there somewhere. But yeah, I think listen to him means he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the savior. Those guys are great too, but they're, you know, they're second stringers compared to Jesus. But uh, yeah, that's exactly what what was said at the baptism. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And uh, now we're getting this again. So, you know, you're seeing... Um, in the same way, the baptism of Jesus, God the Father declares the, the, the righteousness of Christ, and then in the temptation that follows, Jesus demonstrates it. You, know, you might say that at the uh, uh, quizzical questions, you're the Christ, Son of the living God, uh, Peter uh, declares the righteousness, the deity of Christ, and now it's being demonstrated. It's interesting that the way that always works out like that, isn't it? Uh, when the disciples heard this, this voice, they went from smiling to hiding, you know. They fell face down on the ground and were terrified. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you love the Lord. And, and the fear of the Lord in wisdom, in Proverbs, wisdom literature, doesn't mean an abject fright. It means a reverential awe. But when you have any kind of uh, representation, direct representation of God, it is terrifying to any and all creatures uh, at some level or you're not understanding what you're dealing with. So they're terrified. And Jesus came up and just like he did with John in Revelation 1, he immediately calms him down, saying, get up, don't be afraid, you got nothing to be afraid of, but it is an awesome thing to be anywhere near that kind of manifestation of God. And then lifting up their eyes, Peter, James, and John saw no one except Jesus. So it's probably a good thing God said, listen to Jesus, because those other guys are gone again, okay? Um, and that's true for pastors and Bible teachers. We come and go. We're not always around, you know? The word goes right on. It's fine. So, yeah, rapid fulfillment. He's transfigured. He confirms his deity. God the Father confirms his deity, confirms his superiority over Elijah and Moses, but they're all on the same page, right? Now look at verses 9 through 13. Radical teaching. Radical teaching. Look at verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, and they didn't fly down. Could Jesus fly down? Sure, he could, you know, with the Spirit's unction. He could do that. But they're just walking down, right? Uh, which would have been an interesting thing, to climb up a mountain and down a mountain with Jesus. That would have been amazing, right? Um, they were coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until I'm risen from the dead, until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. We're starting to see this. All Any and all supernatural things will be used against Jesus because they've decided he's a satanically possessed false prophet, the bad guys. So he's trying to minimize 
minimize the damage. He's trying to throw as little gasoline on the fire as possible. He's not putting a permanent gag order on them. He's just saying, not right now. Right time, right place. You know, I, I tell young husbands, God's will is not just a what, it's a when and a how. Because a lot of times we men, with our testosterone damaged brain, if we figure out something we want, we think our wife wants us to do, we think we got to do it right now. And sometimes it's better to wait, right? Um, uh, I'm bad about, if I buy her a birthday present, anniversary present, a week in advance, which I don't usually wait that, do it that early. But I just, I can't wait. I just got to give it to him, you know? And she's, she goes, ah, oh, you always give it to me early, you know? I thought, that's a bad problem to have, isn't it? I mean, you know, you got to talk to some of the people I talk to, you know? That's, that's the worst thing I ever do. But uh, it's kind of nice to wait till the birthday, I think, stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, uh, God's will is not just a what, it's a one and a how. And right now, and again, Hey, if somebody is rebelling at the Baptist church, they don't want to witness. Hey, Jesus said, tell it to nobody, you know, and stop there. Is that what he said? Until I'm risen from the dead. After I'm risen, then the church is commissioned to tell the whole story. But right then, for that moment in time. So watch this. He's stressing his resurrection here, right, Shelby? I mean, we believe Jesus came alive from the dead. He was room temperature. He wasn't just clinically dead. If you can be clinically dead for five minutes and sometimes be revived. He was biologically dead for three days. He was room temperature. He wasn't 98.6. He was he was dead. He was, as we used to say in Alabama, graveyard dead. He's in a tomb. He came back alive. Skeptics will say, you can't reproduce that in a laboratory. That's the whole point. It's supernatural. Of course it's supernatural. It's literal, not just spiritual. It's bodily. When they came, it wasn't just we thought we saw Jesus or the spirit of Jesus still does stuff. The spirit went back in the dead body. The body was supernaturally transformed in this resurrection body. And now when he takes off the veil over the glory, it'll blow you away, literally. So, but he's stressing the resurrection. And as you guys know, the resurrection is the essence of Christianity. Um, we actually have a little bit of time. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. It's called the resurrection chapter. And I, I love 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I, I realize Corinthians is a long book. It's kind of a complicated book. It's hard to get Christians to read through it in a sitting because it takes you a little while. But when you get to chapter 15, it's a long book. It's one of the longer New Testament books. Uh, when he starts this this last major chapter, chapter 16 is kind of like a, uh, an epilogue. So this is really the end of the body of the book. He says, now let me remind you, brethren, as I get to the end of this long letter, about the very first thing we did, the first time I came to Corinth, I preached the gospel to you. It, you received it. You stand in it, uh, uh, by which you're saved. If you hold to the gospel I preached about a resurrected Savior, if you've watered that down, forget it. And here's what I said, verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. He died for Krista Bull's sins. He died for Sherry Harrington's sin. Died for Zane Britton's sins. Died for Brad McCoy's sins, according to scriptures. And he was buried. He was dead. He was graveyard dead. There was no biological activity, no brain activity, nothing. And on the third day, he was raised again from the dead, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to multiple witnesses. And he appeared to John on Patmos. And he looked like a glorified, resurrected um, second person this trinity god man savior and he appeared even to 500 people once probably right before the great commission but drop down to verse 12 now if christ is preached if we're claiming jesus was raised from the dead why do you let some people come into your church and maybe even teach seminars to say there is no physical resurrection from the dead if there's no resurrection from the dead categorically then christ isn't risen and if christ hasn't been risen then our preaching is vain your faith is in vain okay if we've hoped in christ 
If we believed in a resurrected Christ and he's still dead, we're all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. It's the whole thing, okay? It's the God-man Savior, humanity dying, the God-man Savior being resurrected as the God-man Savior, and he is the issue and issue of eternal life. So go back to Matthew 17, and he, he Jesus affirms that. When he's predicting and then doing his resurrection, that's another validation of his, of his deity. And his disciples ask, okay, let's see. Why do the scribes, in interpreting the last chapter of the Old Testament, as we organize it, Malachi 4, said that Elijah must come first? Uh, there's a prophecy in Isaiah that says someone in the power and spirit of Elijah will come and prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah in the end times, and then the nation will turn to him. And he says, Elijah is coming. Malachi 4 is going to be fulfilled in the end times. There will be someone who fills that role. In fact, I think it's going to be two people. I think it's going to be the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Maybe one of the two will be the one actually tapped but and restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. Elijah was on the ground, so theoretically, if the nation had rejected, had accepted me instead of rejecting me, we could have set up the kingdom. And we won't go into all the mechanism of that, but I think that was a live offer. Elijah did come, and they didn't recognize him. In fact, they had him killed. So also, the Son of Man is going to vol- is going to suffer in their hands, but be resurrected. And then the disciples understood he was talking about John the Baptist. Uh, everything was set in the first advent for the nation to receive, but the nation rejected. Okay, some people. So what would have happened if they'd received? He would have set up the kingdom pretty quickly, but what would have happened to the cross? He would have been crucified anyway. If Israel had embraced, this is all hypothetical, so it doesn't mean anything, but you can ask uh, somebody in heaven if I'm right, and they'll say, yeah, of course he's right. He's always right. If the nation had responded to John the Baptist, who in his uh, pregnancy is said to be in the spirit power of Elijah, right? He was in place to do that. If the nation had responded to him and to Jesus, and Israel had rallied around and accepted him, the Romans would have crucified Jesus anyway. And he would have made the atonement anyway. But instead of a 2,000-year church age, you would have had about a weak church age, and boom, everything would have been just truncated like that. But you, you guys look like I shot your dog there. I shouldn't have gone there because you totally missed the point now. But I think Jesus is saying, hey, we had it all set up, and they blew it, but we're going to set it up again, okay? It's all going to work out according to plan. Don't Don't worry about it. Okay, boom. When we say Jesus is God's son, we don't mean he's God's little boy any more than when Simon Bolivar is sometimes said to be a son of George Washington. He's not a biological son. He's someone who's like George Washington. Okay, So Jesus is the son in the sense that God the Father is the author of the plan of salvation. He's the initiator of the plan. Jesus is the sendee. Okay, he's the active agent in the plan. He takes a subordinate role like a son to a father, but genetically, humanly speaking, the son is exactly like the father, essentially like like the father. Different person, of course. So don't let that confuse you. Okay, take this to heart. Lots of passages, including the ones we've just saw the last two weeks, affirm the deity of Christ. And yet he comes after the rejection as a lamb. So he says, the son of man, son of man did not come to, to, to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So there's lots of passages. I'm going to share a couple. I've got a memory aid to help you remember a couple here in a second. But let me just say this, go back to my original question from the introduction. What would you say to someone who says, Jesus never said or did anything where he claimed to be God? Now, don't tell me your favorite passage. Tell me one we've studied in the last two weeks. 
I say, well, when Peter claimed he was the son of God, Jesus confirmed that and approved that. And at his transfiguration, he unveiled his his glory of deity was unveiled and he demonstrated he was God. Okay, those are two good places to go. And that's what I would say on something like that to do. But beyond that, and this is my little diagram of what uh, Christ as the God man looks like. One person, that's the rectangle, two natures, fully deity, fully humanity, fully God, fully man. Uh, in addition to the uh, quizzical questions, Q and R in the life of Christ A through Z, how can Dustin remember how to confirm or to prove in the Bible the deity of Christ? Think of the little uh, memory aid, Jesus Christ 1-2. Jesus Christ 1-2. Stands for John 1, Colossians 2. John 1, we've read it a lot this series. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God the Father. The Word was God himself. That's just a straight affirmation. That's John 1. Jesus Christ 1-2. John 1, Colossians 2. Colossians 2-9 says, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's a really good one. And that's Paul writing, not John. Okay, so he's got a different writer. It's not just one writer in one passage. So Jesus Christ 1, 2 is good. But the problem with John 1 and Colossians 2 is, some skeptics will say, well, John is what John thought Jesus was. And Colossians is what Paul thought Jesus was. But Jesus never claimed to be God himself. Well, yeah, he did. He accepted that title we've seen. He demonstrates at transfiguration. But I always think of Jesus holding up an 8 by 10 picture of himself. In the old days when you would go on a, not that I know anything, but you go on a uh, audition as an actor, you always had to have a eight by ten glossy picture of yourself, you know, uh, that your agent would arrange for you to have. So you go in for this audition. So I'm thinking of Jesus holding up an eight by ten uh, picture of himself, and that reminds me of John eight and John ten. In John eight fifty eight, Jesus says, "Before Abraham was two thousand years ago." I am, that's the title for Yahweh, and they knew that, but he's saying, I existed before Abraham. And they say, you're 30 years old, and you're, you're not even 30 years old yet. You think you're greater than Abraham in another passage. So that's that's a strong one. And what happens in John 8 after Jesus is, before Abraham was 2,000 years ago, I am, what do the Jews do? They take up stones. Why? Because you're claiming to be God. Under the law, anybody who claims to be God has got to be stoned to death. Then John 10 is where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And the Greek syntax in the New Testament can't mean we're one and the same person, but one and the same in character or essence. He's not God the Father. Now, when you tell your little kids who can't think abstractly, Say Jesus is God, they think Jesus is God the Father. That's not true. Okay? You gotta clarify that. He's a separate person. I like that diagram with, you know, the circles and a triangle. The Father is God, but He's not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is God, but He's not the Father, nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, He's deity, but not the Father or Holy Spirit. So, let me close this way. Any teacher, any theology, any politician who denies the full deed of Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, Savior, the Son of God, does not have the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. You can't deny one. It's a package deal. Uh, only the God, and you're also cutting your own throat, because to reconcile the separation between God and man, we need a God-man Savior, okay? His deity doesn't die, his humanity dies, but his deity makes that substitutionary atonement infinite in his application, sufficient for all, efficient for the elect kind of thing, right? So only the God-man could bridge the gap between God and man. Um, this is not just theological, it's personal. If you're interested in heaven when you die, right, you got to have a God-man Savior, and Jesus is the only one who qualifies. So um, the idea that the God of Islam is the is the God of Christianity. The crazy thing is, the Western elites think that's a nice thing to say. You cannot find any Muslim 
who knows anything about their faith. And most of them know more than most Christians know about their faith. You will not find any Muslim who will say the God of the Bible is the God of, uh, as understood by Christians, is the God of Islam. They don't believe that. In fact, there are passages in the Quran that say God does not have a son. The cis saying Trinity, okay? The, the, the Quran. So it sounds like a nice, uh, sensitive thing to say, well, the God of Christianity and God is on the same thing. You're going to offend 1.6 billion Muslims when you say that. You might make Nancy Pelosi happy, but you're not, you're not Oprah will be glad, but you're not going to impress any Muslims. Plus, you're a heretic. That's a problem, okay? So just a little bit of, of, of ration, rationality there. Uh, Jesus is the unique person of the universe. He makes unique claims. Uh, all the religions are not different ways up the same mountain. They're climbing different mountains. And I would say uh, you better put your faith in the God-man Savior if you're interested in heaven, okay? And more importantly, as Eric prayed, this ought to be a priority for us who've trusted Christ. You know, not, what did I say last week? If Jesus is your spare tire, you're sitting in the wrong seat. What I meant to say was, what I meant to say was, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you're sitting in the wrong seat, okay? Just clarify that, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to understand, receive, believe, and apply the truths and the implications of this passage. And the Holy Spirit who inspired this text will be the one who empower that process. And I pray you'd be glorified in that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.